What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined once again by Brian Borstein. Brian, thank you for being back, man. Pleasure. What is this, four or five? I think this is number four. We had two solo ones, and then we had the one with Striker. Sweet. I like it. Let's go for five in the future. Absolutely, dude. So today, man, I actually wanted to talk to you about your favorite macro-friendly recipes. <laughs> it cracks me up listening to you guys' podcast and like seeing Straker's content where he has like, he is like the whole foods dude. Whereas, and then you're like, yeah, I love my protein powder, Gatorade. That's like my first two meals of the day. That shit just always cracks me up. Of course, we're talking about training today. Um, Brian, you've been on the podcast a lot of times. I don't think you need a ton of introduction, but I will, of course, link up where everyone can find you and ask you about that towards the end of the show. But really what I wanted this to kind of be a conversation around is your approach to individual program design when you're bringing on a new client, kind of how you go about that, specifically for someone that's trying to build muscle or like mm-hmm. who's chasing physique development. That'll sound good. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Are we thinking an avatar here of somebody that is like late stage, intermediate, early advanced? That would be perfect. Cool. I like cool. It. So to start things off, when someone starts with you, what are what are kind of the questions you're asking them or what are the things you're assessing? So do you have like a movement screen? Is it like screenshots of your last training program? What are you kind of, what are you trying to get from that client to figure out kind of your starting point? Yeah. So one of the main things that I like to do is ask them simply what has worked really well for them in the past and what hasn't. Um, And I think that that's like a really good conversation starter because when you start getting into, okay, the things that work well for you, then you can begin to extrapolate out pieces of that. And then the conversation kind of naturally progresses into, okay, these things worked for you. What, what parts or what types of training and what types of nutrition didn't work for you? Why is that, that those didn't work for you? And then I feel like there's a whole conversation train that can occur from there. I don't, um, I don't do like a movement screen in the sense of like, like back in the the CrossFit days or like when I went through OPEX, like everything was movement screen because mm-hmm. so many of the movements were these functional movements where you had to be able to get into like external rotation overhead and pass through internal rotation and like right. all these different like difficult, di- difficult positions that you need to be able to, to have access to. Um, and when you're doing bodybuilding training, I think there is benefit in having access to those positions. I think it mm-hmm. opens up the, the movement, the exercise selection that, that you can use, but there's so many great ways that you can work around mobility restrictions too, that I think for the purpose of physique development, it makes more sense for me to spend that time looking at people actually performing movements. Um, So that conversation then from, from what we originally talked about regarding what worked for them and what didn't work, I then kind of progressed that into, you know, what are the exercises that work for you? Uh, are there muscle groups that you don't feel as well as other muscle groups? Okay. Let's get some video. Let's see you moving through these movements and like, okay, you don't feel your lats. Let's see you doing a one arm pull down or doing uh whatever, whatever the movement is that you think you're doing for your lats. Let's see you do that movement. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So that, that makes complete sense. So basically you're saying rather than just like we have this movement screen where it's kind of you doing these arbitrary movements, you're probably not actually going to be training. It is let's actually look at the movements you're struggling with. Um, and see how you execute said movements, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for okay. sure. And and I want to see the movements that they 
that they feel like they're doing well at sometimes. Like if they're like, yeah, man, when I dumbbell bench, like I just, it just feels good, you know? And then usually Mm -hmm. you can see them perform that movement and they're usually doing a pretty good job of performing that movement. They're getting that adduction that you're kind of going for, uh, with, with, a with a dumbbell press coming across the chest. Um, and you know, maybe they are going a little out with the elbows because I feel like you can still feel your chest that way. It might not be Mm -hmm. optimal, but I think that you can still have like a decent mind muscle connection with your chest and also train with a little bit of an internally rotated shoulder there. Okay, absolutely. So then when you're going into the actual training program split design, how are you deciding what that split will be? Like I know for you personally, it seems like at least in the past couple, what, like six months, it seems like you like tweak this quite a bit with how you approach your own training split. For a client, how are you deciding what that's going to be? Yeah, so the reason or the way that my training split kind of came to be was a matter of training a muscle group when it is recovered and not really dilly daddling and letting it be recovered for multiple days in a row before training it again. And because all muscle groups kind of require different amounts of volume and recover at different rates, we ended up with this weird split. When you look at my program that it really is like an upper lower split, but like the upper days aren't exactly evenly split. Like it's not three sets of back, three sets of chest, three sets of shoulders or whatever. Like many of the upper body days are only three muscle groups or four muscle groups. And then there might be six sets for one muscle group and two sets for another muscle group. Because as we know, at this point, frequency is just a way to split volume. So you can take the meno approach and do like two sets of a muscle group every single day, seven days a week and hit your 14 sets for the week. Or you can take my obscure approach and do six sets one day and four another and two another and basically get to the same place. So um, as far as how this begins when approaching it with a client, um, I'm really I'm really a huge fan unless people have kind of personal preference or time restrictions. I really like just a standard upper lower split to start because I feel like that opens up a lot of possibilities and ways that it can be adjusted. Um, so upper lower works really well on a four day a week program, but it also works really well on a six day a week program, you know, three of each, but it also works really, really well on a five day week program where it's upper, lower, upper, lower, one upper, lower, upper, lower, upper one week, and then reverse the order and start with lower the following week. So it's very malleable. It can fit many different structures and it does allow that freedom to kind of split muscle group volume as you desire across the sessions instead of having it to be evenly split across each session. Okay. So with what you mentioned earlier with your own training and yep. okay, well, I know like these muscle groups seem to recover quicker than these muscle groups. So that's, have like different volume allocations and it's a little complex. Is that typically something you would dig into with a client or is that because I would imagine as well, like are you, are, for you personally, are you just gauging that by soreness or how do you gauge that? I think soreness is a decent, um, estimate, right? But Mm -hmm. like, I always use this example on my podcast talking about my back and how my back never, never, never gets sore. It doesn't matter what I do. And it handles the most volume as as well. Like, I think I do usually 14 sets a week for back uh, 13 to 14. And that's for sure the most volume that I do for any muscle group. And it hasn't been sore in years. Um, so I don't think that soreness is like a perfect indicator of that. Um, a really good example of that would be seen in the thing I've been 
splaying all over my story about my like hack press machine and, and that, because that like was making me sore every time I did it. And essentially what was happening was I was getting unsore by about, you know, two and a half or three days. Mm -hmm. And then I would allow myself one day of being recovered and then I would go do it again. So on day four or five, I would hit, I would hit that machine again. I didn't make any progress for like months and months and months. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I actually gave myself an extra rest day and I started hitting that machine every six days. So I now had two or three days where I wasn't sore at all. Uh, then I began making this crazy progress. And over the course of five weeks, I've gone from 580 for eight to 600 for 13. And that's, that's like, fair. that's in a deficit of have added 20 pounds and five reps in a deficit on a machine that I was stuck at for three months. So for me, that's like, that's a huge realization of like, well, shit, if I was just going by soreness or like this subjective sense of recovery based on soreness and then plus a day, uh, then that wasn't working for me. But now I give myself an extra day or two and suddenly I'm making this phenomenal progress. So I think it started as a soreness thing for me individually, Mm -hmm. but now it's kind of expanded out into, well, shit, I actually maybe should be expecting like a little bit of progress every week. And if okay. I'm not getting progress, then I probably need more recovery time. This is like, as, as I've kind of, you and I were talking off air, but as I kind of moved away a couple of years ago from the like RP volume accumulation approach into this mm-hmm. more uh, top set back offset closer to failure type approach, I've just realized how little actually is needed and how much more important rest is than I even thought it was. And I knew, I know that physique is a recovery game, but I didn't even realize how important it was until even more recently, you know? I think I always trend towards that too. That's what like the last year and a half I was training six days per week. And we dialed it back to four days a week for the last month. And all of a sudden it's been like strength is just going up like crazy. And it's like, damn, I haven't seen games like this in so long. Right. But it's always like, I want to do more. I want to do more. I want to do more. Like, you know, I think, I think that's people that love training. They're always just going to want to be in the gym more. Um, so if you could take that kind of what you just broke down there to like make it applicable for, for so like in your, in your um, words, how would you say, or how do you break down? What's like your best, I don't know why I'm having so much trouble putting this into words. When should we train a muscle again? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. what are our best um, indicators of when would you train again? Yeah, totally. Totally. I actually think RP didn't completely miss the boat on, on that whole model though. Like the, the soreness as an indicator is one piece of the puzzle. Uh, whether you're progressing week to week is another piece of the puzzle. That's probably the most important piece in my mind. Like okay. there's all, there's this sentiment out there, right. That, or, or maybe it's from RP, but that, you know, if you're, if you're letting a muscle be, and you're doing less volume than you could be doing and still recovering, then you're somehow missing the boat. And, and I don't know, I don't know that that's true. Um, but like, but they, they did get right with the, with the soreness, the, the pump, the intercession pump, again, pump itself. None of these individually, I think are like an indicator of, of anything, but collectively when you have, whether you're progressing, you have, whether you're getting sore, whether you're getting a pump. And then I've actually become a huge, huge fan of the sense of fatigue, the, the okay. disruption as, as Isertel discusses it. Um, and this would be identified as what I am feeling right now after my quad day, where <laughs> I finished training 35 minutes ago 
And right. as of 15 minutes ago, I was still breathing heavy. As of right now, I'm still kind of like a little wobbly on my legs as I stand here talking to you. Um, I had to fill up my protein drink before the episode. So I had to climb some stairs to get up to my kitchen. And I was like, oh, fuck, like, this is not okay. You know, so so those I think that that is like a really, really good sign. Um, because I don't often get sore in a lot of my muscle right. groups anymore because I do the same movements all the time, right? Repeated bout effect. So, so I don't get sore a lot for whatever reason I do, I do get sore in my legs cause I beat the living shit out of them. But, um, but I don't get sore a lot in my upper body, but I do feel those, those signs of disruption. So, okay. uh, I do put a lot of value in that. As far as I, I did miss a question that you asked before in the last segment where you were saying, would I apply this like weird frequency split up thing to clients? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to that is that if it did get applied, it would be a result of the process of getting to know them and seeing them through one, two, three plus mesocycles right. and seeing their check-in reports and discussing with them and analyzing what we're seeing and then mm-hmm. being like, okay, well, apparently it seems as if X muscle group is recovering more than, than this muscle group. Maybe we need more volume here, blah, 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 things like that. And then that all is like a jump off point for a discussion as well. Okay. Okay. That makes complete sense. So then when you're basically, then you're saying like progress across multiple weeks is one of the biggest things we're looking for. That should again be the sense of disruption within movements as well. Um, and I'm guessing, so would you say then this, I wanted to dig in exercise selection first, but I feel like this is a good jumping off point into volume and intensity. Um, so when someone is, or isn't actually, let me just ask this. When are you, what are your signs that you are? Like, what are you adjusting? Fuck, actually let me rewind this. I'm sorry. This is all over the place. Um, starting point for volume. How are you kind of identifying that? Or do you have like a typical starting point that you want to start people at? Yeah, that's usually going to be determined uh, with the conversation that we have when we start kind of that initial conversation of what has worked for you in the past, what hasn't worked for you in the past. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking that we're talking to like a late intermediate, early advanced person, like I assume I give them the benefit of the doubt. And I assume that they know for the most part that either this has worked for them or this hasn't worked for them. And once we know one of those two, even then it becomes easier to kind of assess from there. Um, With that said, though, I do like to start people on the lower end of whatever range we kind of decide, Um, especially because I think that any program I write will start with like an intro week where um, like sometimes it'll have like a deload, then an intro. It really depends what the person's been through before, but it'll at least have an intro week where it's probably like two thirds the volume and maybe like 80 to 90% intensity. So we might be going like three RIR instead of one to two or something like that. Um, So even that intro week will give information that can then help us determine what to do with volume in week one. So oftentimes I don't even predetermine what the volume will be the next week of training until I see the check-in report from the prior week. Okay. Okay. So what are your, your signs that you need to do more volume, less, or kind of stay the same? What are you looking at there? 
It's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so I do use those I, on my check-in form weekly. I do have those subjective markers that we discussed, the pump, the soreness, the disruption or fatigue post-workout. Um, I kind of like people to even pay attention to how long that disruption or fatigue lasts. Sure. Um, like, what do you think when you have a hard workout, you know, is it just, you know, 15 to 30 minutes or do you feel like three or four hours after your workout, you're still feeling a little disrupted? I think it's typically like three or four hours. I notice, especially like upper back for whatever reason is like, I'll be sitting there at work later and just, Oh fuck. (laughs) I typically it's like three or four hours. Yeah. So I, I usually finish like a leg day specifically and I go for a walk just to kind of get Mm -hmm. moving after all that craziness. And the first 20 minutes after that leg day, the walk is just like weird. Like, like, I don't know how to describe it. I feel like half paralyzed kind of as I take steps. (laughs) Um, but then like throughout the day around the three or four hour mark, then I just feel it if I'm going upstairs and I'm like, Ooh, man, my right. quads, like, you know, I, I know that they got worked, but, um, but yeah, I think three to four hours is, is usually a pretty good marker. So when I ask people to pay attention to those disruption signs, I kind of like to know that we're either working hard enough or doing enough volume to feel disruption for three to four hours. Right. Um, if they're saying it's just, you know, 20, 30 minutes and then they're like back to good, then I'm like, okay, that's pretty good, but maybe we can do a little more or we can work a little bit harder. Um, so I really like disruption as, as a subjective measure. The pump I think is, uh, it's a tough one because it's very dependent upon whether you've eaten prior your sodium levels, things like that. So, so I think the pump is a almost better analytical tool to determine volume if you can get someone to pay attention to whether they get a pump and then that pump kind of dissipates a little bit. So we've all been there, like, especially for me with biceps, like for whatever reason I can connect with my biceps super well. So I'll be doing my warm up set with like 25 pounds and I'm like, Oh yeah, I got a pump, you know, it's good. And then I do my working set with 40 and I'm like, yes, that is like peak pump, you know? And then I do another working set and it kind of stays the same, but it doesn't get any better. And then I do another exercise and it kind of stays the same. But if I go to a third exercise, I'm like, where'd my pump go? Like it's kind of going away. So I know for me, for biceps that around five sets is about the most that I can do before things start going backwards. Right. Um, and those are the things that I kind of get other people to try to pay attention to as well, because when you can learn yourself enough to know that, and you know, of course, keeping things consistent regarding fluid intake and food and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But, but, uh, when you can know that, then that also gives you kind of a general idea of, of where your volume sweet spot is. And then soreness again, eh, whatever. I don't put a whole lot of, of importance on soreness, especially if there's repeated bout effect. Like if someone's doing a brand new movement and they don't get sore at all, it kind of depends on the movement. Like, I don't know, cable movements. Do they, do those really get you sore? I don't really get sore from cable stuff too often. I would say no, not especially. Yeah. It always, almost always tends to be overloaded in the short position with cables. Hmm. And I don't even really get sore from short position overload movements at all. Right. Um, whereas things that are going to be taken through a length under mid range definitely are going to be a little more damaging and you'll feel that the next day. So, so it really, whether you get sore or not is, is more dependent upon exercise selection and mm-hmm. movement consistency than anything. Okay. I really like that three to four hours disruption and really basically just feeling like you got a good training session in versus 20 to 30 minutes. I've never heard anyone approach it like that. That makes complete sense though. 
Um, so how do you know whether if someone isn't progressing, how do you dictate whether it is, okay, you need to do more volume, more intensity, or you're under recovered and maybe we need to do a little bit less. Yeah. I mean, you have to ask more questions. Um, you also have to kind of take into account the history of what you've done with their volume. Right. Um, so like if, if I've already taken someone's volume up once, two, or maybe even three times over the last mesocycle, and they're not progressing, then chances are that they're probably under recovered. Um, I think in the past I would have, I would have been more likely to increase volume. And now maybe Mm -hmm. just, you know, looking at things in a vacuum without other variables involved, I'm more likely to think that people need more recovery. Um, so I've kind of shifted, shifted my view there a little bit over the last couple of years. Okay. That's super interesting. Um, so then when we're looking at your exercise selection, first and foremost, like for a movement to dictate what's it or to determine a good movement for hypertrophy for an individual, kind of what are some signs? And then this might just tie into like, again, pump, my muscle connection, disruption, um, a bit of soreness, but like from your end, what are some signs to help determine like, okay, this is a good movement for hypertrophy for you? I, I put a lot of credence in personal preference, especially okay. at like the higher levels. Um, when I program, I often will just write in a movement pattern okay. and I'll say like chest supported neutral grip row of choice okay, or machine converging chest press of choice or, right. or dumbbell press. Like I'll even give people options like that. Um, yeah, I, the N1 stuff has really been interesting because they basically say that if you set up correctly and perform the movement correctly, it doesn't really matter what you're feeling, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, again, two years ago, I probably would have put a lot more credence in mind-muscle connection and feeling the movement. And since kind of going down the rabbit hole of understanding very, very base level biomechanics. Right. I, uh, I think that it is very true that if you are doing a movement, correct biomechanically and doing all those things to hit that, the lat, the lower iliac lat in the way Mm -hmm. that we discussed on the prior podcast with Straker, when we were talking about kind of those, those lat specific movements, right. I think you're hitting your lat. And, and I even think that I can use personal anecdote with that too, to say that when I first started performing that movement, I didn't really feel it. I just okay. trusted that that I was doing it right because, you know, Kasim and Paul Carter gave me a thumbs up and said it looked pretty right. good. And, uh, and, uh, and so I just kept doing it. And as I've continued doing it more and more, I now do it the exact same way from the outside from what it looks like, but mm-hmm. internally I now feel it and my lat cramps up so hard that I don't even like know what I'm going to do with myself at the end of a set. So, um, I think the, you know, the process of performing movements also makes you better at receiving the stimulus from that movement. Absolutely. Okay. And that was actually one of the next questions I was going to ask you is when a client says, Hey, I can't feel a muscle working kind of what your approach is. I know I've had this scenario a couple of times where it's okay. I don't feel this. I don't feel this. And it's okay. Your execution is great. Like intention looks good. So then basically you're saying there, like, hey, if you're executing this lat pull down properly, it 
let's just keep it's not like hey let's plug in a different movement pattern like we know this is effective let's continue to try to progress this or what's your take on that yeah I, i think it could be either or i mean i would encourage the client so i think there's maybe two steps first i think that as a coach you can try to provide cues that help um, so an example would be someone wrote me a DM the other day and they were like, you know, people kept telling me elbow down when I'm doing that one arm pull down They're Like people just kept saying elbow down and right. it just wasn't working for me. Like I wasn't feeling my lat. He was like, and then somebody said, think about scraping your elbow on the ground as, as yeah. you're doing it. Right. So it's, right. it's literally the same thing. Like if you're looking at that from the outside, whether your elbow's coming down or whether you're thinking about scraping your elbow across the ground as you go down, right. same exact movement pattern, but the internal cueing of what you're telling yourself is different. And he was like, as soon as I started doing that, he's like my lat, like, oh my God, you know? So, so I think that if you as a coach can come up with a way to get the person to feel what you want them to feel, then that's the holy grail for sure. Um, but I, like I said, I also do think that if they're doing it, but biomechanically correct, then they are hitting that muscle and they'll probably figure out how to feel it. If they commit to the movement, if they give it a number of weeks and then they come back to you and they're still like, Hey coach, like this one's just, I don't, I don't feel it, whatever. I'd really prefer to switch to X movement. Then of course, by all means do it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like that. Um, I, I know that's some of the approach we've taken as well, because sometimes it will just turn out like, Hey, this movement feels amazing for me or for a lot of our clients, but it just, we've tried, we spent like three weeks trying to get this to be an effective movement for you. And you really still seem to be struggling with it. And like by that point, the client starts to get frustrated. Maybe we're better off just slowing out a slightly, slightly different variation. Um, so I want to dig into one of the most things I'm most interested to hear for you is how you're progressing across a mesocycle. Um, and I'm sure like with how you approach things, it will vary across, like depending on what training phase you're on. But I know you mentioned like top sets and down sets. Um, I know we've talked about before, like the RP approach where we're moving from three RIR to zero to one RIR and adding volume across. What's your current, like typical, this could be a very broad question, but approach to progression across the mezzo. What's that like? take progression wherever you can, man. Um, so, so the thing I've committed to in the last two months has been fractional loading. Okay. Um, and I think that this is completely underutilized by people everywhere. I try to get all of my online clients to use fractional plates because your body literally cannot tell if it's less than like 1% of the load that you're adding. Really? So, I, and I don't know this, like I, I'm completely speaking out of my ass. I don't okay. have a study. I, <laughs> okay, I don't, you. I don't, I, you know, I'm going to find one though. Cause someone did tell me that back in the day. So when I first started lifting, maybe it was like three or four years into lifting. So I was, you know, 19, 20 years old. Uh, somebody on a forum did say that they were like, yeah, if you had one pound to a hundred pound lift, your body can't even tell the difference. And so right. I just kind of took that and ran with it, but I really should, um, I really should actually see if they've done studies on that. Cause I'm sure they have. And I know that at some point, like when you think about it, of course your body's going to know, like you can't just add one pound every week for 52 weeks. And then suddenly you're 52 pounds stronger the next right. year than you were the prior year. So at some point, like your body will detect it. But I think that what it does is it provides longevity to your progression. Okay. And that's what I, that's what I really like about it. So I started doing this uh, a couple months ago and 
on most movements, I add a pound. So if, if the weight I'm using is between 100 and 200 pounds, I'll add one pound each session. Sure. And if it's between uh, like 200 and 600 pounds, then I'll add two to five pounds. I try to keep it at about un- at under 1%, like point, like half a percent to, to 1% increase okay. per week. Um, and that has been just a completely novel and successful approach for me. It's been working on leg extensions, on pull downs, on rows, on pretty much any machine work. It's difficult on dumbbells, although they do make magnet fractionals, which mm-hmm. I don't have. Um, but, uh, but it's, yeah, it's been incredible. And I encourage my clients to do that. So the idea is essentially that you would start at one RIR, basically after your intro week, we push things to about one RIR now. And, uh, and we just add a pound a week until we need to deload and fatigue gets high. Um, for me personally, the need to deload really is, is mental. I almost never reach a point where I just like am so fatigued that I can't progress anymore physically, but it's a hundred percent just like, I cannot imagine going into the gym and training right now. Like I just have no desire to do this. Right. Um, so then I take three to five days off or I do like a seven day deload and then I kind of feel rejuvenated and I'm back at it again. And when I start a new mesocycle, I'll usually, uh, start back slightly shy of where I was, but not significantly. So, um, like I would say if I was pushing movements to zero RIR, I'll probably backtrack a week or two and then work forward from there. But if I was finishing any movement at like one RIR and felt pretty good about it, I may just pick up where I left off and keep going. Um, yeah. And then that's the, honestly, I try to replicate that with individual clients too. It's funny because with individual clients, their training is obviously individualized, but it represents a lot of the the philosophies that I use within my own training and that I've found mm-hmm. successful. Uh, but with general programs, I feel like this approach it doesn't really work. Like, I really, I really like the progression of effort level across a mesocycle for general programs because it ensures yeah. that people get like an assessment week at the end of every mesocycle before deload. So they know if they've been sandbagging, et cetera, Uh et cetera. Right. Right. But with the, with the process of individualized programming with the weekly check-ins and with video analysis of movement, being able to see how close people are to failure, that they're working hard enough, that their execution is good, stuff like that. Like it just doesn't need to follow the same parameter. So I've really found it interesting how those two paths have, kind of separated between the way that people find extreme success on the general programs training one way. And then we've been able to kind of train differently with the individual programs and people also find success that way. That is super interesting, but I mean, it makes sense. And from, so from your individualized programming, basically then you're having people start like, Hey, we're going to do an intro week where it might be like two to three RIR. Then you're spending most of the mental cycle at one RIR. And it's just like trying to add like a half percent. You said correct per week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when, but you also mentioned like taking it to zero to one RIR. When is that happening? Yeah, no, that would happen as soon as it gets there. Like, like, Mm, uh, yeah. I mean, if we're at one RIR to start and you're just at a pound a week, then, you know, we know that recovery doesn't take place linearly. Right. So some weeks you might get that one extra pound, but it requires you to go to zero RIR. 
And then the next week you had another pound and maybe you have one RIR, right? Because your recovery is better or whatever. So it's not that we see linear progression, but it's mm-hmm. important to note that on like the weekly check-in forms, there's also all these questions about like sleep and stress and nutrition right. um, and all the like kind of tangible uh, ways that we can analyze recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we'll often see is that people struggle to make progress with equal RIR on, on a week like that, but then mm-hmm. they have a better week where they recover really well and they're, you know, eating all the food and sleeping and, and all that. And then they come in and they make their one pound progress, even though it struggled the prior week, it's much easier the following week because these recovery uh, patterns are more in order. Okay. So Basically, it's we want to hit one week of one RIR, and then you're focusing more on the load progression and kind of let RIR fall where it may within like that progression, correct? Yeah, 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 totally, exactly, and yeah. I mean, I would say even like I've seen I've seen it at times with myself and others where we start at one RIR and then we're three pounds heavier three weeks later, and it's like two RIR because mm-hmm. their adaptations are occurring faster than the load progression that we're using. Um, so that sort of thing happens too. And I don't really mess with it too much. Like a lot of times people get jumpy and they're like, well, dude, that was way easier. Like, shouldn't I go add like four pounds next week or something like that? And I'm like, no, clearly things are working. Like it's getting easier, you know, just keep riding that wave. So that's like the Holy grail, man. If you can, if you can add weight and have the set be easier, shit, you've hit the jackpot. Like I don't touch a lot at that point. I think that would be the hardest time to not do more though. I think you have to be really like, I almost want to say mature in this to not do more. Cause I know I'd be the same way. Like, fuck, all right, I'm at five pounds here. Um, And you mentioned top sets and back offsets. Can you talk us through what you're doing with those or what that means? Yeah. uh, Top set is depending on the movement, usually going to be six to 10 reps for hypertrophy. And then my back offset is usually going to be 10 to 15 reps. And, um, the top set is essentially the goal for the day. That's the thing that really matters. So I wrote this post on Instagram a couple weeks ago about how to build to a top set because a lot of people were confused about this Mm -hmm. and you have like the old bodybuilder way, excuse me, where, uh, you know, it's like 15, 12, 10, eight, six. And the set of six is like your heaviest set but every set increases along the way. The unfortunate part of that approach is that you get basically like five sets prior to your top set, but mm-hmm. you're doing so many like challenging reps, right? Like 15, right. 12, 10, eight, like, ah, I don't know how many reps that is. It's like 43 reps before you even get to your work set. Um, so in the pursuit of optimizing performance on the top set, given that this is kind of like the thing that we look at to determine if training is working, mm-hmm. We want to create the least amount of fatigue possible on our way to the top set. Um, So as an example of that, if I'm doing like a big uh, like squat style movement, call it like my hack press machine, right? Mm -hmm. I I would start with something. My ultimate goal is to get to 600 pounds for 10 to 15 or actually, I guess it would be six to 10 because it would be a top set. Uh, But yeah, so so we'll say 600 pounds for six to 10 is going to be the goal. I would probably start with like 50% of that weight. So like 300 pounds and I'll do like 10 or 12 reps, just kind of get some blood flow. Then I'll go to 400 for six. 
then 500 for four, and then I might hit 550 for one or two. Okay. And so now I've literally caused no fatigue because the hardest set I've done was probably the 550 for two, but then my work set is 600 for six to 10. So uh, none of those sets were challenging. They were just kind of preparing the body progressively for, for what is the top set to optimize performance on the top set. So then I take a few minutes, gather myself, focus, execute, and that set is usually the one-ish RIR set. And then we'll rest however long is needed, depending on the movement. And then we'll do the back off set for 10 to 15 reps. And that one, I'm usually, as long as it's a safe machine, I'm usually telling people to go to the, complete the last rep that they think they can complete where they think they would fail the next one. So we'll call that like zero to one RIR. Um, And I, I really like training in that spot for the back off sets. I think that that's a good place to be. And, uh, it becomes relatively easy for me to see on film, whether they're actually getting close to zero to one RIR based on kind of some of the stuff we've talked about on like rep cadence, slowing down and stuff like that. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Now is this top set back up set? Are you applying this to like all movements across the entire training day? One to two movements? What's that like? I usually apply that to the big compounds um, or any compound really, um, I would say it's applied to like all rows and pull downs and pull ups and squat pattern movements, um, for things like lateral delts, rear delts, biceps, triceps, mm-hmm. I tend to use more of a three to four set, uh, double progression type model uh, where, uh, I maybe will take the last set to failure or do a couple partials or something like that. Right. But, um, but I, I definitely am not like trying to, to do like, I feel like, I feel like the smaller muscle groups need more volume. They receive yeah. less, uh, they receive less damage from the, uh, like, like those big compound movements are all like mid range or lengthened overload movements. So mm-hmm. they cause a lot of damage. And a lot of the isolation movements for the lateral delts and arms are short range overload movements. And naturally, when we know that the length and position is going to cause more damage and more stimulus, and then you look at the exercise selection that you, that you take for the isolation movements, you will see that almost all of those movements are overloaded in the short position. Right. Okay. So you're tending to then apply more volume to those short position isolation movements. Yeah. I mean, if you want it, volume's a complicated topic though. Like I would, I would personally say that a one set of a lengthened position overload movement is more volume than one set of a shortened position overload movement. And, and I don't feel confident saying it's one and a half times as much or two times as much or anything like that. Like that's actually one of my big questions that, that I'm trying to find the answer to, but, but I know that it's more, I feel very confident that it's more. So if we say that I'm doing two sets of a hack press machine, I don't know. That seems to me to be way more stimulative and way more damaging. And and it's in a sense, more volume than doing four sets of a cable spider, spider curl. 
Absolutely. I mean, I would agree. I, I, yeah. I agree with you 100%. It's just hard to know how do we actually measure that, right? Right. Well, that's how I've kind of made sense of it in my brain is that I need three or four sets of this short position movement um, because that's what feels similar to me. So I, I guess that's not super scientific. Um, it's very bro, actually. But uh, but yeah, bro, three or four sets is what I need, you know? I think it's interesting how a lot of this too, like, I would say from hearing what you're talking about now, it sounds like you're, I don't, and I don't know if this is accurate to say, but it sounds like your approach to all this is a little bit simpler than it was like even a year and a half ago. Would you say that's pretty, would you say that's accurate or no? Yeah. Yeah, I do, man. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because like two or three years ago, I was like that that new, maybe not new, five years ago, I was the new person in the evidence-based space. But Mm -hmm. in the first two or three years, I saw this culture of like these keyboard warriors, like overanalyzing all the science and basically being like, well, science says this, or, you know, you really want to stay three reps shy of failure because science shows that you don't have to work there and blah, blah, blah. And like, the more that I listened to these people talk and like the less results they got, it just kind of like, like it almost made me not want to be associated with the evidence-based community in some ways. Cause it just like this, the bro statement of just like fucking get in there and work hard, just go work right. hard and stop overanalyzing. Like I'm not that person either. Cause that, that culture is what actually led me into the evidence-based space because I wanted more. Like I, I knew there was more than just get the fuck in there and work hard. Right. But but the other side of it wasn't great either. So I think that I've I've really come back more into the middle of like yeah, you do have to care about the science and like that stuff matters and we can we can use it in an individual approach. Like like in my training programs, not everybody trains this way that we're discussing. Some people right. do respond better to more volume being further from failure and there's many reasons that we might use that. But it's also very true that many people do need to just train harder. Um, so in many ways that makes things simpler. Like you said, like when we realize that progressing one pound a week, taking care of your nutrition and your recovery and disrupting your muscles are like really important things to do in a training session and in in a training week, it does, it does simplify the process, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I, I can appreciate that a lot. Um, let's talk about swapping out exercises. So when it comes to like, okay, this is when I'm going to plug in a new movement versus this one is when I'm going to keep things the same. What are kind of your rules of thumb there? I know in the past, like what, like a couple, just a couple of years ago, I mean, I was really saving until the last year. I felt like I wasn't giving a client, like I wasn't keeping them entertained enough. Basically, if I wasn't constantly like giving them like new movements, new movements, new movements, um, that's something I've really gotten away from, but I also always find myself at least like a couple clients a week explaining, Hey, this is why we're not <laughs> changing anything here. When it's like, yo, this is supposed to be a new training phase. Why does it look so similar to last? For you, like, what are your kind of guidelines for when you should change a movement out? Yeah, I have an initial conversation with everyone in that kind of original discussion when we decide to start working with each other, where mm-hmm. I explain to them that I explain to them the repeated bout effect. I explain right. to them about the drawbacks in diagnostics associated with muscle confusion and things like that. And then I kind of ask them where their head is at. Like, like, are you the type of person, right? They call it neurotyping. Are you, are you the neurotype that, that needs to have variety to feel enjoyment in the gym? 
Or are you the type of person that can just, you know, read it on the paper, go implement it like a robot and go home? Because if you're the robotic person, then I think you're really going to benefit from keeping the same movements, giving us consistent data, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're on the other side of the spectrum, um, I will tell them that we are going to have a couple repeating movements. I try to, it used to be, it used to be two. I used to say we would do part A and B as repeating movements. Now I try to sneak it in there where I'll put like part A and then on part B, I'll be like alternate movements. So I'll get three movements in that they're, <laughs> that, that they're repeating. Um, but I do try to get as many repeating movements as I can in there. And then I'll switch out the accessory stuff. It really does blur diagnostics though, because yeah, while keeping your main three movements the same is going to, to definitely push you in the right direction. If you're constantly changing the type of curl, the tricep extension, the lateral delt work, sometimes you're supersetting, sometimes you're drop setting, sometimes you're running the rack, sometimes you're doing circuits, like all of these things are going to make it really difficult to actually mm-hmm. get any clear data out of the check-in form regarding disruption and soreness and right. these subjective signs. So so we do kind of include that in discussion and we're like, hey, these are these are things that you should expect if you choose this route. And these are things you should expect if you choose just this route. And then we go from there. Um, so, so that's just on a weekly basis, whether we rotate movements or not. But as far as rotating movements, say we have a client that is, that is the person that's like, no, I'm just a robot, bro. Just like right. the same shit out there and I'll just do it. Right. So when would we change movements there? Mm-hmm. Um, short of there being like, some sort of, you know, elbow tendonitis or, uh, patellar issues or whatever it is developing. Like we would keep those movements until we see two or three weeks of no progress probably. And I would probably even encourage them if there's a deload coming up, I'd probably encourage them to go through the deload. And then I, (laughs) I would encourage a client to keep the same movements, me personally, I probably wouldn't do it, to be honest. I would probably be like, fuck those movements. Like, I, I'm done with them. I don't want to do them anymore. But for the purpose of diagnostics, um, in a perfect world with a robot, I would say, right. hey, hey, let's let's give those movements another two or three weeks now that we've deloaded. Let's see if we can get a little bit more progress out of them before we switch them out. Okay. So as far as the neurotyping conversation goes, would you say you're more towards that like robotic side of things or the latter? Um, like a little bit more variety is better for you. I'm really actually somewhere in the middle. Okay. Uh, yeah, I really am. It's interesting. I, I, I took the test that Mike Milner sent me a while ago yeah. and, um, uh, and I was like that middle, the middle type where I had like, you know, I was like a third split between the first type, the second type and the third type. Um, okay. so I was literally, I was literally like evenly split between them. So, uh, and I feel the same way in the gym too. Like I, I really don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything if I'm constantly changing stuff. Right. I I think that it would be, I I enjoyed training like that. I did about a year of that maybe in, in college where I just didn't care because I was drinking and partying a lot. And I was just like, you know what, this year I'm just going to go in and like on chest day, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then the next week I'm going to do it, whatever I want, even if it's different. And you know, it didn't really matter. And I still like, I was 20 years old. It doesn't matter. You know? Um, Right. And I enjoyed that. Like you didn't have to think about it, but I think that by doing that, you essentially minimize the importance of training in your life. Like Mm -hmm. if you're just going to go in and do the random shit and you don't have some sort of analytical way to assess 
what's happening on, on a weekly or monthly basis, then you are, I think you do minimize the importance of it. So I I think that if it is something that you care about, you should know that what you're doing is working and you should try and use that data to improve. No, no, absolutely. And I mean, I, for me, I definitely more biased towards less variation, but I know like also that comes from me personally. I feel like anytime I add a new movement, it takes me at least two weeks to feel like I'm really getting very much out of it. And I, I don't know if I'm hella uncoordinated. So I don't know if like, I've wondered if that's part of it, but I, for me personally, I can't just pick up a new movement. Very rarely can I pick up a new movement in week one. It's like, wow, that's like, let's say I swap that two chest movements. I'm not going to leave the gym feeling like, like, wow, like that so much disruption in my chest. Right. So mm. part of that is probably a personal bias as well. Do you get really sore from the new movements, even if you're not like feeling them well? Mm-mm. And I, I, like, again, I feel like it takes me like, okay, I got to record this, record this, record every set, figure out my four videos, take some time to analyze this. And then it's again, like week two, week three, it really picks up. Um, so, but I mean, some of that, I think again, is personal bias. Like I would imagine yeah. the longer you've trained, like with where you're coming from, you can probably, I would imagine pick movements up a little bit quicker. Um, kind of just a random thought though. Yeah, we talked, so we've talked about this on my podcast and then I asked Helms about it too on the Uh one that we did with him because Aaron and I both feel like neural adaptations take place way longer than most people think they do. Um, And we used a barbell curl as an example and, and, you know, form was perfectly consistent. I videoed every single week, no changes, like elbows in tight, slight slight hip hinge, making sure that I wasn't using momentum, et cetera, et cetera. And literally I started barbell curling in week one at 95 for 10. Mm -hmm. And every single week for four weeks, I added five pounds and still hit 10 reps. And every single week it was one to one to two RIR. So four weeks later, I was doing 115 pounds for 10 as strict as 95 for 10, four weeks earlier. And that would have never happened if there was no neural learning with the barbell curl. Like there's no way I added 20 pounds to my barbell curl in four weeks. So, um, so anyways, I thought that that was really interesting and it's to your point as well, like more of the reason why I think retaining movement selection is important as far as data, because it wasn't until I hit that 115 by 10 where then I came in the next week and, uh, and I didn't progress and I was like, shit, now I guess I, the neural adaptations are gone and I guess I'm just going to have to battle 115 for the next four weeks, you know? Um, but it was four full weeks before you stopped that progression. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Interesting. I think for the listeners, basically like we do see these neural adaptations where we're basically getting better at, we're more efficient at basically the skill of the movement is improving without us necessarily seeing muscle growth. So like a lot of like us picking up new movements, it's just those neural adaptations, but that, that is super interesting. Um, and that does kind of tie into the final thing. Do you have about 10 more minutes here? Yeah, man, no worries. Cool, cool. That does kind of tie in the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is progression across mesocycles. So with where you're at currently, um, is it typically for you just, hey, like we had this one mesocycle, let's deload and basically repeat what we did as previous meso? Or is it, again, I know you're digging a little bit deeper into N1 stuff and they do like the metabolic neuro Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are hypertrophy phases. What's kind of the way you approach that? Yeah. So 
I feel like when, like I kind of said earlier regarding, you know, what I do with movements after a deload week when a new mesocycle starts, like if I was struggling with a movement at the end and I really felt like I was pushing up against the wall of failure, I may back off like two or three weeks and then kind of give myself a little bit of runway to work forward. Um, so a good example of that would be on the hack press. Like right now I've made that ridiculous progress from 580 times eight to 600 times 13. Right. At the end of this, this cut, when I take my week off, I'm I'm not going to have that movement in there, but if we assume that I would just for the sake of this conversation, keep that movement, there's no way that I would pick up and be like words, 600 times 14, let's go. You know, like mentally that would put me in a hole in week one to the point where I just didn't even want to do week two. Um, so what I would probably do is actually back that off to like sets of eight to 10 with 600 and then maybe add a set. So I'm doing like maybe double the amount of sets, but I'm doing them with three, four, five RIR. But that machine is so demanding that I'd be still getting, you know, a lot out of it at that point. And then over the course of the mesocycle, I would add weight and or reps to the point where I would hope to finish the next mesocycle slightly higher than where I ended the prior mesocycle. So that would be on like a movement like that. That's really demanding because it's just so mentally taxing almost even more than physically something like a pull down, a leg extension. I'm probably more likely to just either backtrack one week and move forward or not even backtrack at all and just kind of hit the same weight that I did before deload week and then move forward from there. Uh, because those don't, those don't require any like, you know, mental gymnastics to get going before the set. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Now that said, I know you're also about to do a strength phase. So what's the thought process behind that? Yeah. So I also didn't answer your question regarding the, the N1 stuff anyways. Um, I, I personally, bias towards not liking metabolite phases. Um, So someone asked me on a podcast the other day, like, you know, say someone really liked metabolite phases. Like what if they decided to do metabolite phases for like half the year and then they did like half the year hypertrophy and strength? Like, would they be leaving a lot of gains on the table? And I was like, I don't know, like probably not because to be truthful, like I bias the other way where I never do metabolite phases and I probably should. So maybe like I'm leaving gains on the table too. Um, Metabolite phases make me feel like I'm doing CrossFit, man. Like, you know, the idea being the, the two, the two ways N1 generally implements it is you have like the systemic one where you might take like three big compound movements and superset them as a giant set. So it's like back squat to bench press to bent over row or, something along those lines. Um, that's awful. And then the, the way that they, uh, implement the peripheral or the local conditioning is the old, like similar to like the Garanda method where Mm -hmm. they'll go like, uh, you know, six sets of eight reps with your 15 to 20 RM. So the first four or five sets aren't bad. And then you get to like set five, six, seven or whatever. And it's just awful. And there's all these metabolites in your muscle and you just can't move. Um, so I don't really like the way that either of those feel. So like I'm leaving gains on the table maybe by not being optimal in that direction. So then that brings us to strength phases, which I love because I hate <laughs> metabolite work. So right. strength phases are like the opposite of metabolite work, right? They're like, let's rest a lot and do really low reps and eat like a power lifter. Um, so 
the reason I'm doing a strength phase is because I haven't done one in so long. Like, again, I've just literally hooked my wagon onto this hypertrophy bandwagon and I've just been training hypertrophy almost straight since like 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, uh, as I was leaving CrossFit, I did do a six-month uh, Ripito program, the Texas method. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it was dope, dude. That program specifically is responsible for getting me up to a 405 triple for back squat, which is the most that I ever squatted for three. Um, and then it also – my deadlift was already strong, but I hit a 519 single at the end of that cycle. Um, and so I, I haven't done back squats or conventional deadlifts since that point five years ago. Right. Okay. And so I'm really, really curious now because my legs are bigger, like physically there, there's more hypertrophy in my legs. My muscle size has grown and I've learned to move better. Like I now know how to use muscles that I want to use instead of just mm-hmm. standing, sitting down and standing up and sitting down and standing up. I now like know how to squat. Um, and I know how to set my spine much better and I know how to use my glutes in a deadlift and, and things like this. So I'm really curious about whether all of this hypertrophy work that I've been doing has transferred over at all into the strength realm. Um, and then on top of that, I think the timing is great because I'll have a week off of training in the end of September mm-hmm. and it will coincide with it being the end of my diet. So I'll have this like one week period off where I can kind of eat up and right. get my body back to, you know, drop all the diet fatigue. And then I'll probably do like a deload week, intro week, strength phase. So I'll, it basically it'll be mid to late October before I actually start week one of the strength phase okay. after the deload and intro. And, um, it's, I, I honestly, to be honest, dude, I also have hypertrophy fatigue. I know that's not like a real statement, like a diet fatigue is, right? right? But I have hypertrophy fatigue, bro. I'm like tired of training hypertrophy these days. So um, so it'll be fun to just do something different and uh, and eat more food, get out of this dieted state. And um, I'm just kind of looking forward to it. Are you expecting that that with positive carryover too when you get back to hypertrophy training? Like, I know I had CJ Moxley or Cody Moxley on the podcast a couple months ago and we talked through the, like how the neural phase, okay, we're better at recruiting muscle fibers. So then when it comes back to hypertrophy, like potentially we build more muscle tissue. Or I would ask, do you think it's hurt you that you don't have it taken a strength phase for the last three years? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't, I don't know if I, I know enough at this point to, to say confidently, I could conjecture and say that I don't think that it's going to help. Um, I, hypertrophy, Cody CJ knows a lot more of the, the science than I do. And he's obviously on the front lines of kind of testing that stuff with Kasim and N1. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I will, maybe I will find some sort of carryover. Um, like, yeah, maybe, I guess, I guess I, I think that hypertrophy is such a forgiving adaptation in that many things can enhance hypertrophy that the, I just, I just don't know that doing sets of one to three reps is going to have 
the impact that I want it to have or that, that you would expect it to have for hypertrophy to occur. The way that N1 does these strength phases, from what I understand, is a little bit more like six sets of six increasing weight. Um, so like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing a back squat, you know, you have one set of six at the end, that's really your like challenging set of six, but you have these five sets of six leading up to it that are kind of just like neural priming. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually is in the hypertrophy range. So while yeah. your volume is lower, you are hitting sets of six. I'm thinking of taking a bit more of the like, um, data driven approach, you know, those guys, Zach and Josh mm-hmm. at data driven strength, sure. um, I really like the work that they're doing with um, higher volume, much more shy of failure. Like they just put out a graph today even that was talking about how like, you know, 75% of max for seven sets of three. And so if you're 75% of max, you're like at an eight to 10 RM or something like that. Right. And and you're doing seven sets of three, like that's a strength day, right? Um, Okay. And that sort of setup really speaks to me. Partially because the last time I did strength work, it was in the repito style where it was like five by five, add five pounds no matter what every week, you know, dude, by the end, it's like 365 for five, fuck 370 for five, fuck 375, you know, like every week it's like, how am I going to do this? But with the, with this approach, it actually makes more sense to me because we know that strength is a neurally based adaptation and it's a skill component, right? That if you're, if you're grinding reps in strength work, then you're recruiting all of these kind of auxiliary muscles and these little mini compensations are occurring that you don't really want to occur. Um, but if you're doing seven sets of three at a 10 RM, you're not going to mess any reps up. They're all going to be perfect. And you might not even experience any velocity loss either. So, um, I think that, you kind of set yourself up for success in the skill of strength when you perform it that way. Absolutely. And again, I think like the definitions there, I don't think that that's really comparable to what anyone does because that's, that's what I'm doing right now. So I'm in a neural phase and we're doing, Oh, cool. Like I was, ex- I was expecting it to be like a Windler five, three, one, or which I, I hate that shit for the exact reason you said, like when I ran started strength and I was like, God damn it, I got to add <laughs> five more pounds again this week to my back. So <laughs> I was such a fucking ground last week. Um, but yeah, it's basically like maybe six, six, four, four, First sets three RIR, last sets one RIR, right? And we're yeah. adding to it every set, so it is quite a bit different. And like you said, like it makes sense that that would carry over to hypertrophy because it is still in the hypertrophy rep ranges. Whereas like three reps at your seventy five percent, at seventy five percent of your one rep max, and like eight to ten RP or eight to ten RIR, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, eight to or ten eight. RM. So it would be like it would be like a five to seven RP, a five to seven RIR. Okay. Okay. Probably not going to have quite as much carryover. So, the, so that, that, that makes sense. Okay. I, I guess I didn't understand that. I didn't know that's how you're setting it up. I think if you do like, like Helms was just talking about this on iron culture this week, the genetic mm-hmm. limit conversation, but he was basically like, you know, originally the five by five was like a power building approach because you're getting all the volume that you need for hypertrophy, but you're also getting some low reps for strength. Right. right. So five by five, man, like I grew on the Ripito program, like my ass and my legs, like that was the first time I ever threw 365 plus on my back for reps. And okay. it just did it every week, you know, and, right. and my legs and ass got big. Right. Um, but I just don't expect that to happen with sets of one to three with five RIR. 
Right. And I mean, with what we know about rep ranges, that makes complete sense. But um, this has been a super insightful conversation, man. I apologize. We kind of just got to ramble in here now. Uh, but as always, such interesting topics, dude. Before I let you go, will you just let the listeners know where they can find you and anything all you'd like to plug? Yeah, totally. Uh, the best place to find me is Instagram at Brian Borstein. That's B-R-Y-A-N. You can also find me just by typing in Evolved Training Systems. I also have a company called Paragon Training Methods. Um, all that stuff is linked through my Instagram profile. And uh, that's really it, dude. Come uh, come check out Paragon Training Methods. If you are a female, it is definitely more female-based programming. We do more glutes, more delts, less chest. Come over to Evolved if you're a dude or a girl wanting more balanced programming. Evolved is kind of like my lab where I get to try out new ideas. So this whole concept that Jeremiah and I just talked about, uh, we're at the top set and back off set and you know, working a little closer to failure. This is more likely to be the newer stuff that's in my Evolved program. And it's just beginning to make its way over into Paragon in the early stages. So um, as I kind of come out with new ideas and things I want to try, I, I try them on myself. And then if that goes well, then pieces of that might make it into evolved. So, uh, yeah, I need, I, I love having people there to give me feedback and, you know, tell me what's working, what's not working. And, um, the more people I have there, the better. So yeah, come hang out. Absolutely. And I have a couple of clients who are nutrition clients that are in evolved currently and everyone just loves it. Jody, I think, you know, Jody, actually my assistant. Yeah. Lewis. Lewis. Yeah. 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 Who's absolutely jacked. So <laughs> very clearly it works. Shout out to you, Jody as well, because I know you're listening to this. Um, thank you again for being here, man. And I'm looking forward to having you all again soon. Absolutely. Appreciate it.